Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, all that is in heaven and on earth is yours, and you rule over it all. So you alone have the right to lift up and to make low. Lord, you do as you see fit, and no one can stand before you who doesn't first humble themselves as your servant. Lord, we offer ourselves to you as our basic act of worship. We simply offer back to you what belongs to you already. We have been strangers to you and to your people, so we thank you and praise your name that we have been brought into your family, the church, and thank you that we have been justified to you in your son, Christ Jesus. Lord, forgive us for holding back any part of our lives from you. Lord, if there is a corner of our hearts, any corner that we have kept from you, let your Holy Spirit reveal it to us this morning. We pray that we would labor to root out sin with tenacity. Lord, if there is anything tangible that we are withholding from you, whether it's how we spend our time or our talent or our treasure, we ask that you would forgive us. Help us to view each resource we have as something you have given us to invest in your kingdom. Help us to be generous with our lives the same way that Christ was, willing to be spent to the end of his life. Let our love not be in word only, for as our Lord said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Father, we love your church, both here and around the world. So we pray for the Tave family as they serve you through transporting pastors and Bible translators, healthcare workers, food and medicine throughout Indonesia. Father, we pray for safety for Jeremy as he flies. Give him skill and let his aircraft run well. And God, we thank you for Marcel and his service to you and your people in Burkina Faso. We pray that you would provide protection from all who wish to suppress your message, the message that your kingdom has come and will soon come in fullness. Let your kingdom be seen as true as earthly kingdoms continue to crumble. And Lord, we pray for Pastor David Sang and his, his wife, Dimte, and the House of Glory Church, the church planters and pastors throughout Myanmar that they support and disciple. For Pastor Aaron there, who was recently placed in prison for his support of the resistance movement for three years, and he's using this as an opportunity to spread the good news to fellow prisoners. We pray for Pastor Chityu, whose home was recently burned to the ground, and yet he continues to shepherd your church and spread the gospel. Lord, that their, let their labor and suffering find fruit in new and strengthened disciples. And Father, we pray for ourselves this morning. We see in our lives and in our relationships that we need you desperately our sin, the sin of others, and the chaos of the world touch every part of our lives. We feel it physically and mentally and emotionally and relationally. Father, we ask that these sufferings would produce endurance in us, and from that would come character that has been tested and proven faithful. And by seeing your faithfulness in our lives, that we would have hope, hope because we've seen your love poured into our hearts through your Holy Spirit, that you have given to us. All of this because you showed your love for us in Christ's enthroning death and resurrection. And Lord, we pray for our brother Hans. We thank you for the labor that he has spent this week studying your word, and we pray that uh, his words would be your words straight into our hearts. It's in your son's name we pray all of these things. Amen.
Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. You can open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10. Before we enter the Word today, I would like to take a moment to thank all of you for the last few months of sabbatical. I'm humbled to be standing before you again today as one of your elders and pastors with the great privilege of re-speaking God's Word to you. The sabbatical that I just stepped out of was only possible because of the leadership and care of the other elders and the deacons and the staff as well as the love and care that you showed to one another, and so thank you for that. It was a time of reconnection with my wife and children, a time of working on improving my physical health, and a time of great and gracious conviction by God of what sanctification in my life should look like for the next few months and years. And by His grace, I'm excited to continue serving and serving you in the ministry of the Word for many more years to come. So thank you. Let's do what we know how to do. Let's get into Joshua chapter 10. And would you read with me verses 12 through 14 to begin this morning? At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ailan. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Let's pray. Father God, we come near to you this morning recognizing that we have no ability to sustain ourselves. Only you are self-sustaining, and only you can give us all that we need, life and breath and sustenance. Only you give understanding and conviction, strength, and most of all, only you give salvation. As we hear your word and do our best to expose its meaning as you intended, we pray that your spirit would rule over our hearts and minds and consciences. Please help us to align ourselves with your truth and submit ourselves to your gospel and the kingdom that it has formed. Encourage and convict us now, we pray, in the name of your Son, whom you have crowned as King and Savior over our lives. Amen. Amen. On December 8, 1941, Americans throughout the nation huddled around their radios to hear of news from Honolulu, Hawaii. 24 hours earlier, the Japanese Imperial Navy attacked the Pacific Fleet stationed at Pearl Harbor. It was one of the saddest days in our country's history and a turning point in the worst world war that humanity has seen to date. To commemorate the day, in the beginning of his address to the nation, President Roosevelt called December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. And for many years, this truly was a unique day. It is still one that should be commemorated to honor the fallen and to keep us as a nation from repeating the error of appeasement in our nation's past. But it unfortunately is not a truly unique day. For on a bright September day in 2001, the United States was again attacked by an enemy. And parallels to Pearl Harbor were immediately drawn by the media covering the unspeakable horrors of 9-11. Pearl Harbor and 9-11, while infamous, 
We're not ultimately unique. If you look throughout history, wars and famines, pestilences, social uprisings, they are the mile markers of history. There is nothing new under the sun. It is this proverb, this idea that there is nothing new under the sun that serves as the frame to the masterpiece of the text that we have before us this morning. Here before us will play out a day in the history of creation that is unlike any other. And Joshua 10 draws us into the narrative of the day in which the sun stood still in the midst of the heavens. Many of us know this story, do we not? Many of us have heard it in Sunday school, and many of us have pushed it aside because it seems to be an embarrassment in our age of worship towards the religion of scientism. If you're unfamiliar with that term, scientism is the opinion that the scientific method is the only way to render truth about reality and creation. It avoids and dismisses the supernatural. Too much attention, however, on these celestial events, the sun and the moon, too much attention on this misses the main point of this story. For that is not what made this day unique. Instead, what sets this day apart is that the Lord heeded the voice of a man and that Yahweh fought for Israel and brought them victory in the land of Canaan. And as we look through this chapter, we will see more narrative accounts of the warfare waged by Joshua and by the Israelite army, but hidden behind it is a truth that will find its deepest reflection in another day in which Yahweh fought for his people, another day that is truly unparalleled, the day where Yahweh brought salvation not just to Israel, but to all nations through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And so from this text, we will witness the fact this morning that the Lord God fights for his people. The Lord God fights for his people. And in the midst, we will be reminded of how it points toward the cross of Calvary and ultimately the consummation of all history when the Lord returns and vanquishes all foes. This telescoping imagery, I believe, will give each of us encouragement that we need to stand firm in whatever battle we find ourselves currently embattled. And so let's begin this morning by reading the first section in Joshua chapter 10, starting in verse 1. As soon as Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Yarmut, to Yaphia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmut, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. What we see first is an attack from a coalition of adversaries. 
in verses 1 through 5, an attack from a coalition of adversaries. Now, we should be getting used to the repetition as the author of Joshua has been giving detailed battle narratives with the fall of Jericho and the eventual fall of the city known in Hebrew as Ai, in English as Ai. But with the fall of those two cities, other city-states are beginning to hear about this rogue, nomadic nation that calls themselves Israel. Rahab was the first instance of having heard about Yahweh from a distance and hearing about what he had done on Israel's behalf. And then last week we saw that the Gibeonites were willing to gamble by practicing deception just to get into the covenant protection of God's people because they too had heard about Yahweh's military might. Now as the reader, we can contrast the fear of Gibeon with the fear of this coalition led by Adoni Zedek. Rahab and Gibeon were what were called God-fearers. Their fear led into wise submission to Yahweh and his people. But unfortunately, the fear evidenced by this so-called king of Jerusalem does not lead to wise submission to Yahweh, but instead further prideful rebellion. He doubles down, for he thinks if Gibeon can go down, being as strong and powerful as it was, a group of warriors, then so can we. And so Adoni Zedek builds a coalition of other city-states from the southern portion of Canaan to fight against Israel. You see, Israel had come into the center of Canaan, but they still had the south and the north to conquer. Now let's slow down a bit and really examine what is happening here. To understand what we read in Joshua, we have to remember that it is the first book of the Hebrew canon that comes after the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Law of Moses or the Torah. And the theory that I think is the most likely is that the first audience of this book, of Joshua, was the group of Jews who lived in the time of the Judges. It was written to a people that were under siege from neighboring pagan nations, enslaved to their enemies, and wondering if God had forgotten them. They have these stories from the Torah that speak of this powerful God, and yet they, in their current circumstances, were sitting in enslavement and war. Had God forgotten them? And so one of the primary goals of the author of Joshua was to encourage the covenant people of God in who God is and in who they are in regard to the covenant promises he has made them. In a very loose sense, you can think of Joshua with regards to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as you think about the New Testament in regards to the Old. Joshua is written as a book that is confirming the promises that were given in the Torah to Abraham and his descendants. And so a connection is made in the imagery used throughout Joshua, as if to say, remember that you are descendants of Abraham and therefore descendants of the promise that God gave to his people. Trust in God's faithfulness. So Joshua often reflects backward in imagery to convey this truth. The prime example we've seen already is that just as the Jews of the Exodus marked the doorposts of their home with the scarlet marks of blood from the Passover lamb, likewise Rahab marked the entry of her home with the scarlet thread to evade the destruction wrought by the Israelite army. And our section here is no different. There are markers that look backwards in the story of Israel all throughout this chapter. 
But just in this section, let's look back at the imagery that's apparent here. We have Adoni Tzedek, who was the king of Jerusalem, and we have a coalition of southern city-states forming to do harm to Gibeon, a group aligned with the people of God. What Joshua is here reflecting is the story of Genesis 14. Now, we don't have time to go back and reread the whole thing because we have a lot to get through, but if you want to just turn there just to acquaint yourself with that chapter again, In Genesis 14, we have the story of Abraham, and there a coalition of southern city-states kidnapped the nephew of Abraham named Lot. And Abraham and those in covenant with him fought a coalition of southern city-states to save Lot. And afterward, you'll remember in the story, Abraham was approached by the leader of Jerusalem, the leader of Salem, named Melchizedek, or in Hebrew, Malchizedek. And Abraham gave him tribute and was blessed by him. And so here in our story today, we have Adonitzedek. There we have Malkitzedek. In both, we have a coalition of southern armies coming against those in covenant with God's people. Now these names, Adonitzedek and Malkitzedek, they're very important. Adonitzedek means Lord of Righteousness. And in Genesis 14, we have Malkitzedek, which means King of Righteousness. Now, if you recall that story, this Malkitzedek, this Melchizedek, is a picture and type of Christ, the true king of righteousness. And scriptures, such as Hebrews, and even our reading earlier from Psalm 110, point to God's Messiah as being in the priestly line of this Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham and his offspring, the covenant people of God. But now you see the contrast with our story here. Our story here is slightly different. Here in Joshua, we have one who has set himself up as Lord of Righteousness, but is in fact a false Lord of Righteousness. He's part of a rebellious kingdom, a ruler of a rebellious kingdom, and he curses rather than blesses those aligned with Abraham. He is, in fact, the counterfeit Lord and the adversary of God's people, setting himself up as righteous and drawing his people into a false form of righteousness, so they call evil good and good evil. But God was clear, was he not? In the promise to Abraham, God made clear that those who bless or stand in covenant faithfulness with Abraham, they will be seen as part of the family of God and protected by Yahweh. But those, like Adonitzedek and his coalition, who curse or fight against the covenant people of God, will be cursed and will ultimately see destruction. Rather than let their fear of God lead them to submission as it did Rahab and the Gibeonites, the false lord of righteousness, Adonitzedek, is leading the southern kings and their people into complete destruction. Now maybe you're already making the connections. But from the earliest fathers of the church all the way through to the reformers, giants of the faith have seen this imagery as a picture of Satan leading his kingdom of darkness in an attack on the Gentile church, the church that has come under the protection of the covenant people of Abraham. And just as this false lord has mustered this coalition here in Joshua against Gibeon, Satan has mustered his entire kingdom of darkness and all its agents to wage war against the church and every single member within it. Friends, As you encounter all that wages war on our bodies, on our minds, on our hearts and souls, where do you let your fear direct you? 
Does your fear, like with Gibeon, bring you into humble submission to Christ? Where you fall at his knees and cry out for his mercy and the chance to be a bondservant in his kingdom? Does it draw you to Christ? Or does your fear drive you to do what seems right in the eyes of man and instead rebel against God even harder and seek out the things of the kingdom of darkness even though you know that they will ultimately bring you destruction? Where does your fear drive you? Do you escape into addiction or worldly notions of entertainment or relationships that draw you away from Christ? Perhaps you escape into withdrawal from the people of God, isolating yourself, letting your emotions tell you truth. Those who are aligned with Christ will suffer persecution. It has been promised to us. And we will suffer persecution from the world outside that hates our king. And we will suffer inward persecution as our bodies break down and as our temptations and attitudes rebel against God's reign. We have an ancient foe who seeks to destroy who seeks to undercut the church. And you must understand that you are at war with him. And there is no one who can defeat him on their own. As Luther says well in his hymn that we will sing later today, Satan's craft and power are great, and he is armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Friends, you cannot fight Satan by yourself. And trust in these words, he is in war with you. He's at war with you. So where do we turn when our eyes are finally opened to that persecution and to that warfare that so often we are blinded to? When that persecution, external or internal, comes, what do we do? Let's look and see where Gibeon turns. Take a look at Joshua 6, or Joshua 10, verse 6. The men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor, and the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beit Horan, and struck them as far as Ezekah and Machadah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beit Horan, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ayalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. 
Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Here we see that Gibeon turns to Joshua. But in doing so, they see that it is not a man that saves them, but a man that acts as a mediator between God and his people. For here we see God's miraculous triumph. Gibeon cries out to Joshua and says, Please don't forget your covenant with us. Come protect us from this adversary who wishes to do harm to us. And the pleading tone is evident in the repeated imperative commands that they use. They're telling them. They're not asking. They're frantically begging for help. For Joshua had shown himself as their deliverer in the last chapter when all of Israel wanted to destroy them for their deception. But let's pause for a second because this is still what we do in the church, is it not? We say we want to be saved by Jesus. We say we want to follow Jesus, but then we look to men. We look to pastors. We look to one another to fulfill us. And it always works out that that person we look to lets us down because we are sinners, imperfect, trying to fight the same battle you, you do. And so, so many people I've heard over the years as a pastor say things like, the church hurt me, or this pastor wounded me. And friends, that may be true, and God is just as upset at that fact as you, but we do not worship man. We do not worship the church, and we do not worship pastors. We worship Jesus Christ, and he will never, ever let you down. So stand firm in him. Stand firm in his fight because he fights for you. And what they saw here was the same thing. They called out to Joshua and they said, Joshua, you're our savior. Come save us. But remember with me who Joshua is. In the second portion of Numbers 13, 16, we're told that Joshua's name was Hosea. And Moses renamed him. Hosea means salvation or deliverer, the one who saves. But Moses renamed him to Yehoshua, which means Yahweh saves. Yahweh delivers. It's the very name of our own Savior, Jesus Christ, Yehoshua, which translates over to Jesus. Joshua, in his military might as general of the Lord's host, is to reflect the truth that it is not a man that can deliver, it is not a candidate that can deliver. It is not even an army that can deliver. But it's God's mighty sovereign act of salvation that brings deliverance. The author could not make this more clear. Joshua marches all night with his mighty men of valor to reach the battle. But look at what God says to him in verse 8. Do not fear them for I, God says, have given them into your hands. Gibeon is calling out for salvation. They're calling out for Hosea. But praise God, they instead get Yehoshua. And notice who does the work from that point on. Yahweh. Notice that it's the Lord who throws the coalition of adversaries into a panic. Notice that it's the Lord who threw down large stones from heaven. Notice that it's the Lord that gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And notice that it's the Lord 
who fought for Israel. It was the Lord who accomplished the work of deliverance. Yes, he used Israel just as he does the church and the preaching of the word, but the emphasis is that Yahweh is the triumphant warrior. Notice, for example, that it says that more died from God's action than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. God is the hero. And this is where we encounter the famous celestial event of the sun and moon standing still in the sky. For Joshua cries out in prayer and says, in a command to the sun and moon, stand still. Now how, dear friends, do we deal with these seemingly unscientific narrative events? For many, this story is a black eye on the veracity and trustworthiness of the Bible, and so it would rather be dismissed. But because we know that this is the living, breathing, completely sufficient and truthful word of God, we cannot and will not do so in this church. There have been many suggestions given as to what happened here. Some of the less prominent theories are that Joshua was actually calling for a solar eclipse, or maybe that the sun's light just simply lingered for a while, or that maybe Joshua was pronouncing a special omen that was well known in the ancient Near East where the sun and moon were opposed to each other in the sky, inflicting fear in the enemy. Or, finally, that it's meant figuratively, and the celestial event never actually happened. But unfortunately, friends, none of this is found in the text, is it? And so the remaining theory is that this happened, and the earth physically stopped rotating. Now, we must admit that the atheistic worshiper of scientism will balk at this. Maybe even some of you in here do as well. This seems highly improbable scientifically. But friends, that is until you recognize that the core of our faith is built upon the truth that the transcendent, immaterial, omnipotent God spoke the worlds into existence from nothing and raised a dead man to new life. So personally, I have no problem with the fact that God showed his miraculous power by causing the earth to stop rotating on its axis long enough for the Israelites' enemies to be defeated. And if we have a concern about that, well, then we must also ask how God rained down hail large enough to kill only one side of opposing armies present in the same location. <laughs> to me, that seems just as improbable. The whole point, my friends, is that these were impossible. They were improbable. But they were actions on the part of the God of Abraham. And friend, I say this with all due respect and love. If you are not able to rationalize these miraculous events in your mind, it is not a question of whether or not this story makes sense scientifically. It is a question of whether or not you believe in a creator God who transcends time, space, and the physical laws of the universe that he authored. But friends, don't get so stuck on that issue that you miss the entire main point of this story. The position of the sun and moon is not even the thing that made this day unique. Do you notice that in the wording? The final verse of this section, in verse 15, is clear. Excuse me, verse 14 is clear in this. What made it unique is that the Lord heeded the voice of a man. And God fought for Israel. That's what it says made this day unique. It wasn't the specific means that were the point. It was the man, that a man in the flesh could move the hand of the Almighty God 
so that God himself fought on behalf of his people. If we don't understand how that makes that day unique, then we miss the point of how far removed we are from our creator and how minuscule we are in his sovereign plan, that the voice of a mere man would move God's hand. The psalmist's words immediately come to mind, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Friends, God has no need for us. He is not required to act on our behalf. As much as we believe that we're each special little snowflakes in God's hand, that is not the truth. But according to his covenant faithfulness, not our specialness, according to his steadfast love, he listened to the one named Yahweh saves. And he acted on behalf of his people against the adversary. And already we are seeing the imagery that projects forward into the New Testament. You see, there as well, friends, we see the adversary eager to attack and destroy those in covenant with Yahweh. But the Lord raises up one whose very name means Yahweh saves to lead his people in conquering the adversary. This one is the one Jesus. And he is the one who entered into the battle of mankind against our accuser, the devil himself. And this Jesus took the very wrath of God so that we might be saved. He was fully flesh as a man, fully incarnate, and yet also 100% God. And it was his voice that cried out for the Father's forgiveness for the very people that crucified him. And it is his voice today, friends, that intercedes on your behalf and mine. Only because of his mediation and intercession can the sacrifice on the cross of Calvary atone for our sins. Only he can ransom us out of the kingdom of darkness and place us into the covenant relationship that we have been given with the Father. Paul captures this beautifully and simply in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is the man who Father God listens to. Praise God for that. It was on that day on Calvary where the sun darkened and the earth was shaken that an event occurred that was similarly singular in its power and miraculous in its nature. The God-man, Jesus Christ, placed his sinless body into the hands of sinful mankind and the kingdom of darkness. He was murdered by crucifixion. He was taken down from that cross, that tree, and placed in a tomb. And the complete nature of what occurred on that day it was not known for another three days. But on the third day, when his disciples went to mourn his death, they found the tomb empty. For Christ had risen triumphant over all creation and had put the kingdom of darkness to open shame. It proved that on Good Friday, Christ died on your behalf and on mine, and three days later, Christ rose victoriously in a day unique in history, a day in which the Lord fought for his people. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for his covenant people. Amen? Amen? He fought for the Israel of God, the bride of Christ, the church of the living God, in whom you take refuge. It was a day unlike any other. On that, all of history 
is centered. But God's fight for his people, Israel, here in Joshua, it did not cease in this moment. For that day became a base camp from which further advance and conquest would occur so that God could prove himself true to his promises. Let's go ahead and read the next section in Joshua, verses 16 through 27. You still with me? These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave in Machedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machedah. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them, but do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Machedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. In other words, they shut their mouths. Verse 22, Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out from him from the ca- to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmut, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. As for Machedah, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Machedah just as he had done to the king of Jericho. What we see here is God's promise of future victory. God's promise of future victory. Here we see God use this singularly unique day to encourage his people in the ongoing battle that is needed to conquer all their enemies. And friends, please notice with me that very obviously, but we may even miss it, the people are at war. They're not comfortable. They're not at ease. But God promises them victory. Likewise, God's people now are constantly at war. We're not at ease, but God promises us victory. With their armies defeated, the five kings of the coalition flee and hide themselves in a cave. Their fear is still driving them in rebellion rather than to a place of humble submission. In this, they picture the state of all mankind currently in league with the adversary of God himself. And the book of Revelation you might remember, has very similar imagery to this that shows mankind's prideful rebellion even when God's authority becomes overwhelmingly obvious. Remember this from Revelation Revelation 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling out to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? 
You see, these kings in Joshua had followed what made logical sense in their own mind. They would flee from the God of Israel and seek refuge elsewhere. Not in his mercy and grace, but in a place that would ultimately become a prison cell and an eventual coffin for them. And this is not unlike the world in which we live where humanity is still fleeing to find refuge in that which they believe will bring them peace and safety. But what one will eventually find is that our solutions become a place of imprisonment and doom. Friends, to what have you fled for refuge? Is it bringing you the peace and safety you desire, or is it imprisoning you even further? It's easy in this moment to talk about things like addictions. If that's the case with you, you know what I'm talking about. But harder still is to talk about the attitudes and the emotions, the ways of relating, the isolation, the withdrawal, the things that we think will bring us peace and safety, but in the end, they only harm us. The only solution, dear friends, is to turn from what you have pursued and instead pursue Christ in humble submission with all of your energy and with all of your heart. When we flee from Christ to anything else in our attitudes and actions, we will find ourselves imprisoned and defeated, not secure at all. Christ alone is our fortress. He alone is our stronghold and the one in whom we find refuge from all that seeks to destroy us. For these kings, as they cower in the back of the cave, you can see it with me through their eyes. They watch the light slowly fade as the rocks are rolled in the entrance. And while they're safely under lock and key, the Israelite army goes and routs the cities they ruled to make sure they are defeated. And when that is complete, Joshua orders that they are brought out to face the penalty for their rebellion against Yahweh. But before their sentence is carried out, Joshua uses the moment to give courage to the leaders of the army of Israel. He has them come forward and put their feet on the necks of these kings. Now this was the symbolic gesture known throughout the ancient world and still employed throughout the Middle East that clearly proclaims conquering victory and power over an enemy. In our own day, you might remember back a ways, the people of Israel, or excuse me, of Iraq, using their shoes to hit the statue of Saddam Hussein that was being brought down when Iraq fell. Now Joshua, acting as the mouthpiece of Yahweh, repeats God's words, Do not be afraid nor dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Joshua knew that the battle would take years and would be long and hard, most likely the entirety of the lives of the people in front of him, and even then the land would not be completely conquered. But he also knew that they needed strength to keep up the fight because in the end, God will be victorious. Little did Joshua know that his words would reverberate not just to the original audience in the time of the judges, but all the way to the New Testament writers, for they, like we, find ourselves in this in-between excuse me, in between time where Christ's death and resurrection has occurred. And the battle against the adversary has been won because God fought for his people. And yet, the skirmishes continue until the day that all the enemies of God are fully judged and destroyed. And so we too, brothers and sisters, can accept this same promise of Joshua. The gospel of Jesus Christ is going throughout the earth. It has imprisoned and bound our accuser. He is not completely dead yet, but he is limited in his rule. 
While the global church continues to wage warfare with the sword of the Spirit, the gospel of Christ that is preached every Sunday morning in faithful churches. And God has promised that one day Christ will make the earth his footstool and subdue his enemies under his feet. And this was promised in Genesis when it was foretold that the Messiah would crush the head of the serpent that wounded him, step on his neck, if you will. And it was completed on the cross of Calvary, but its full effects are not here yet. And so we wait. We wait with this assurance from the Apostle Paul who is reminding the church at Corinth of this same sovereign will of God, this truth that victory would come. We heard it in our earlier reading. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign, which is what he's doing right now, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Church, do you believe that Jesus reigns and is bringing conquest? Well, back in our text in Joshua, Joshua takes these rebellious kings and executes them and hangs them on trees until evening so all the surrounding enemies could see what would happen to them. They became a curse. As it was written in the law in Deuteronomy, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hangman is cursed by God. And so Joshua does this in obedience to the Levitical law. He takes their limp, dead bodies down and places them back in the caves in which they had sought refuge. And he seals them in. And what was their refuge has now become their tomb. And at the writing of Joshua, they were still entombed in death. Friends, this is what will befall all and any who refuse the gracious offer of mercy given by God to submit to his benevolent rule. One might argue, as we've already seen in Joshua, why would I want to be in unity and submit to this God that carries out such violent actions against these people? I mean, he killed them, hung them on a tree, and then threw them in a cave. That's just mean, some might say. And my simple answer is that this was better than what they deserved. It's better than what I deserve. You see, we cannot read this book through the simple lens of violence or peace. We cannot read it through a 2022 chronological snobbery that we have developed where we think we know everything. These city-states, these people were pagan in their worship. They were sacrificing their live babies on the red-hot altars of demonic deities. They were taking part in abhorrent sexual practices that were unholy and an abomination to the God who created them. And if they continued unchecked, they would pollute the very people of God. It would have been mean of God to let them persist. The urge to give context for what is seen in Joshua, friends, I get it. It's understandable. We want to try and describe something 
to the world to get them to understand. But friends, what we must never do is apologize for the work of a holy God to destroy sin and raise up a holy people. The impetus is not on God to answer for his righteous judgment. It's on mankind to answer for our heinous rebellion. And so it's no wonder to me that even in the present-day church, there would be those that find God's actions rather than the actions of the Canaanite people as evil. For we live in a day where one of the primary motivations to vote is to protect the ability to murder innocent unborn children on the altar of convenience and comfort. We live in a day where any and all sexual activity is encouraged and celebrated regardless of how far it strays from God's original design and command. We live in the same day as Joshua. We've just made it a little bit prettier. We live in a day where evil is good and good is seen as evil. But friends, make no mistake, you have the same options available as they did in Joshua's day. One is to continue to seek refuge in the lies of the world and the lies of a counterfeit Lord, the lies of a counterfeit righteousness. And if you continue to follow in his trap of deceit, you will end up like these kings. You will find destruction and eternal death in the very things you were hoping would bring you comfort and peace. You will be judged for the rebellion you have committed against your holy creator God, and you will bear the penalty for that sin yourself on judgment day. Or, your other option, as was available and taken by Rahab, by Gibeon, is to see this text in light of its context and imagery of the day. That we and every human that has ever lived are like these Canaanites. Every one of us has practiced worship of the demonic false deities, including ourselves. Every one of us has found solace in the very things that our loving creator has warned us will bring us destruction and death. Every one of us have harmed the truly innocent among us and called evil good and good evil. We are no different. We, like they, deserve complete annihilation. And yet, like the Gibeonites, we have been given space in the covenant people of God to seek his protection and lordship, and we have been given that only by his mercy. And the way that has been granted to us is because God himself became a man, lived and ministered among us, was wrongly executed, hung as a curse on a tree in our place, and then laid to rest in a borrowed tomb. A stone was rolled in front of the entrance. But the good news of the gospel is that unlike these five kings, our king of kings and lord of lords could not be held back by death. Jesus conquered the very sin that was destroying mankind. And we see this even in Peter's sermon in Acts 10. He connects these dots. He says this, We are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. If you are here this morning and Christ is not the Lord and King of your life, 
If you are not part of the covenant people whom he has forgiven and over whom he reigns, or maybe you are a person who knows that you are dabbling in sin, friends, then you are dead in the curse of that sin, unless there's repentance. Your end will be like these five kings, entombed and imprisoned by the very rebellion that you think will save you and give you peace. And so today I beg of you, turn instead to Christ and hear his call to you. He desires to forgive you of your sin. He desires to show you mercy, and by his grace, he desires to draw you into his people, the church. If that is you, one of us as pastors would love to talk with you after this, the gathering about what it is to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Or you can turn to the person that brought you and talk to them as well. But for those of us who have already been purchased by his blood-bought sacrifice, he has declared to us that we will be victorious with him. Amen? He has declared to us that we will stand on the neck of the serpent. Amen? And our second reading spoke of Christ's resurrection as the first fruits. It is the, the proof to us. And then we who are his will resurrect as well. We will one day stand in victory over the vanquished and conquered body of our adversary that wages war against us at every turn. I can't wait for that day. Can you? Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, where is the adversary waging war against you right now? Is it internally in temptation? Maybe in doubt? Maybe in deception? Maybe he is just kicking you while you're down. And you are just exhausted. Maybe it's in doubt about your faith or doubt about your part in this covenant community of this local church, whatever it is, would you please take Joshua's exhortation to us today? Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Even this thing that seems insurmountable in your life right now, even that, Christ will conquer one day this too shall pass. And so stand firm in Christ and his promises, for one day he will win the battle because the Lord God fights for his people. And those promises are not empty, for he has already given you the proof that they will come to pass. We see this pictured next in the last section this morning. We see proof of God's faithfulness. Take a look at verse 28. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makedah to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel, and he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. And he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it, and they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. You guys getting the drift so far? And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lachish. And Joshua and all Israel went with him, went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. 
He left none remaining, as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it, and he captured it with its king and all its towns, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and to its king, so he did to Debir and to its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev, and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. It's a little less boring than if it were in a movie, right? Because we'd have the famous music in the background and the fighting montage going on, where they'd go from city to city, destroying And this seems a bit repetitive, doesn't it? But for the audience of this book, fighting back foreign armies and despots in the midst of the period of the judges, they would have heard this promise, and they would have shouted back, Sure, God, you promised it then, but look at us now. Where's this victory that you promised us? Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like any of your prayers that you ever utter? I know it does mine. We often hear the salvific promises of God and ask him why they have not come yet, but God in his sovereignty and perfect plan gives us an answer as he did them. He says to us that he will prove his faithfulness, just not in the way or the timing that we might want. But in the midst, he does not leave us with no hope or proof of his faithfulness. For the first audience, he reminds them of God's fulfilled promises to Joshua and the people of Israel because he catalogs the long but definitive conquest of the southern half of Canaan. And with each city-state, you guys saw the pattern emerge. Five to six times it says this in every case. They, number one, lay siege and fight against it. Number two, they capture it. Number three, they strike it with the edge of the sword. And finally, they devote it to destruction. The repetition is meant to speak a truth here. In Joshua 1.3, God said to Joshua, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you just as I promised to Moses. And what we see here, friends, is God proving faithful to his promises. God acting to be faithful to his promises. And his faithfulness is accomplished through Joshua. And Joshua captured, it says, all these kings and their land at one time. And notice what it says there. Notice what it says at the end of verse 42, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Like the first audience, you might be tempted to believe that God has forsaken you, but the truth is that God fights for his people. Amen? Amen. Say it with me. God fights for his people. We often just give up and surrender to the enemy long before the work of God's conquest is complete. That's why we cry out to God. Why have you forsaken? It's not because he's actually done so. It's because we give up and surrender to the enemy long before the work of God's conquest is complete. We see the same pattern in the church that in Jesus, God has laid siege to the kingdom of darkness. And through the cross and resurrection, God has captured that kingdom. And he has ransomed us from it. And one day, on that day in which Christ judges the living and the dead, all who rebelled against him will be devoted to destruction. But for now, we exist in a time where the battle has been won, but the skirmishes remain as God strikes the kingdom of darkness with the ministry of the two-edged sword of his word. 
the Lord God will always prove true to his promises. When it seems that he has forsaken those promises, we must remember our finite nature and realize that his sovereign plan is not thwarted by our present circumstances. The Lord God has, is, and will always fight for his people. If we are pursuing him purposefully, we can know that he will be faithful to lay siege to those areas of our lives that are not yet under his loving rule. And friends, this is a mercy and a grace. It should be our constant prayer. Lord, no matter how violent the battle is, lay siege to those places in my soul and heart and mind that are not yours. And friends, he will be faithful to do so. Whether it be our thinking or attitudes or our finances or our activities or our relationships or our isolation and withdrawal, the Lord will find those areas of rebellion and lay siege to them because he is faithful. That is not the action of a mean God. That is the action of a holy and loving God. And so our job is to lay our lives at his feet in contentment and thanksgiving and gratitude in those moments and to thank him for bringing the sword of his word to bear when it comes. And he will devote our flesh slowly but surely to destruction while devoting our souls to holiness and glory. That should be the desire of every follower of Christ. Friends, is there something in your life right now that God is laying siege to so that he might present your whole life to him in holiness? Perhaps he is, and your feelings and emotions are deceiving you into believing he or his people have abandoned you. But like Joshua's first audience, we should instead look back to God's faithfulness, to his people throughout history, as we've seen here, and especially to the faithfulness he already showed in the salvation work of Jesus. And this should strengthen our resolve to continue in the battle. Mission Fellowship, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at the trial before you. Instead, be strong and be courageous. For the Lord God fights for his people. He fights for us, his church, and he fights for each of you, his children. Turn to him in faith and let Christ win the battle and conquer the enemy. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you are an amazing God who fights on our behalf. Please forgive us for the times in which we doubt your faithfulness, we doubt your strength, we doubt your power, we doubt your ability to conquer something so small and meager as the trial that we find ourselves in. Lord, I know that for me personally, I have much to confess in this area. My attitude of giving up or of being angry that you have not operated on my timetable. Lord, it is something that I personally lay at your feet, and I pray, Lord, that we as a church would do so as well. Lord, we have taken the reins as Lord of our own lives and become angry at you that you do not serve us. And so, Lord, we ask your forgiveness now. We ask that you would mold our hearts and minds to understand our place, that we are your creation and you are our creator. 
We are your subjects, and you are our King and Lord. We are the saved only by the mercy and grace of the Savior. Help us to approach your cross now as we come to a time of communion and humility and in conviction and in repentance. Lord, help us to be an example just as Joshua was to the world around us that it is not us who saves or the church who saves or the, the community around us that saves. It is Yahweh that saves. And you have saved through your work of Jesus on the cross. Father, change our hearts to understand this truth and bring us in humility before you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.